0: You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702, the naked scientist. It is that time. 11 883 All of your science-related questions. And the WhatsApp line 072-702-1702. My very favorite Dr. Christmas. You're my favorite Dr. Christmas in the whole <laughs> oh, wide oh, world. Nice.
1: <laughs> You'll go far. You'll go far. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm all a bit... Um, a bit jubileed out, to be honest with you. I've had five, four days of festivities, more festivities My than I've had in the last two years. So, we've, yeah, we've, we're, do you call someone who's jubileed out jubilant? I don't know. But <laughs> yes. so no, I've had a really nice few days, actually. It's been good. have been seeing friends and been to parties and beacon lighting and everything. It's It's been really terrific.
0: I'm glad that you're having a good time there. But back to business. So let's get started with uh, Prince in Mayerton. Hi, Prince. How are you? I'm good, ma'am. How are you? Good, good. Go ahead. Okay, ma'am. Uh, I'm sure we all believe in the Isaac's Neutron theory of uh, the force of gravity. Whatever goes up, must come down. Now, my question to the doctor is, why is it that ants, scorpions, uh, mosquitoes, and flies, they can actually walk on the wall and even on the roof and actually circle it? Doesn't the law apply to them or what? mm. Nice one, Prince.
1: Doctor? Did you say how they, how they walk on water? It was a slightly dodgy line. Say so, again.
0: So, so, Prince, if I understand, you were saying that they can walk on walls. So why doesn't gravity apply to, okay. to those insects? Yes.
1: Yeah. Sorry. Misheard what you said. The answer is that that different animals do this in different ways. So let's consider flies first. They have got hooks on the bottoms of their feet. And when they fling themselves onto a ceiling, they reach out with their front legs and then grab hold of the ceiling using these hooks. And although the ceiling looks smooth, if you take a magnifying glass to your ceiling, you'll find, that in fact, it is covered in little nooks and crannies and f- basically toe holds that are fly-sized. So there's plenty for a fly to get hold of. Now, uh, bigger animals, like and you mentioned scorpions, they can also do a similar sort of thing because they have a, got a low body weight, So they're not actually able to slip down the wall, they're not very likely to slip down the wall, but they've also got hooks in the in their claws, and they can actually stick the hooks in, and the the spiky bits at the end of their legs, the claws, will actually dig into the wall, and that gives them a toehold. But there's also another trick that some animals use. And most people have heard of geckos, little lizards, and they run up and across walls and they don't use either of those two techniques. They actually use the power of electrostatics to do it. If you zoom in very, very far with a big powerful lens onto a gecko's foot, you'll see that its feet are actually hairy and that even the hairs have hairs. And those hairs are so tiny that when the small lizard runs across the wall or across the ceiling, it's pressing those hairs incredibly close to the surface. And there is a phenomenon in chemistry called van der Waals attractions. And this is that if you've got big molecules, that because the electrons that go around the atoms are orbiting all the time or moving around, from time to time you'll get some bits of the molecule which are relatively robbed of electrons because they're spending more time in another bit of the molecule, and that means that part of the molecule goes a bit plus. And the bit where the electrons are at the time goes a bit minus. And if you've got the same thing happening on your surface, like your ceiling, where molecules uh, have part of themselves that's from time to time a bit positive and other times a bit negative, because opposites attract, they will be able to stick themselves to, to the surface and so they use that power of electrostatic or van der Waals attractions to hold themselves onto the ceiling. They're not defying gravity what they're doing is achieving an attractive force which is more than the acceleration due to gravity that's trying to pull them down so as a result they stay where they are.
0: Oh, okay, that's quite an interesting one. Thank you so much Prince in Merton for the question. Let's go to Faye in Kilani. Hi Faye. Hi, how are you? Good how thanks to you. Ask- you. Mm. I want to ask uh, Doctor, that uh, I am taking uh, sena leaves for to work my stomach. is Is it harmful?
1: Hello, Faye. The answer to this one is that <coughs> what is harmful is if something has suddenly changed. now if if you were to say to me, I used to be regular as clockwork and now something has changed abruptly with my bowel habit and I can't explain why but it has and uh, this is not normal for me and it's been going on for a while. It's not just a one, one day it did this. That is more of a worry than if you said to me, I've always been a bit bunged up. I always have to take extra things because then you can say, well, probably it's partly you and partly perhaps what you're eating. So, really, it comes down to whether or not this is a new thing or a long standing thing. But in either case, it is better if you can not to take additional supplements to help you go to the lavatory it's better if you adjust your diet accordingly in a way that won't upset your stomach but does keep things moving and one of the best ways to do that if you do find yourself struggling sometimes is to increase the amount of soluble fiber in your diet this means more fruits and vegetables and less processed food because uh, fruits and vegetables things with the skins left on etc they contain soluble fiber it's essentially stuff that you can't digest But the bacteria in your large bowel can, and they they will make a meal of it, but it attracts water. And so it keeps everything a bit runnier, a bit easier to move along. And then you don't need to take other things that that largely work the same way, but are less likely to be irritant to you you if you do it with fiber rather than taking drugs and pills.
0: Thank you so much, Faye N. Kilani. On that question, I think there are many people who might find themselves in that situation. So we definitely needed that information, Doctor. We'll still take your calls on oh and your messages or voice notes on 072-702-1702. 702 The Naked Scientist. We're still with Dr. Chris Smith, 11 W where you can give the Naked Scientist a call and ask all of your science-related questions. And the WhatsApp line, 72 We'll continue with your calls. Nelly Sway, in four ways. Hi.
1: Hi,
0: Dr. Andrew Leberfiele. Mm. So, my question is on genes. I want to know, how is it that one person's genes can be so strong that it can be passed on to the next generation? How the kids can look like they're dead and the dad can look like you dead, how is it that it can like it can be so strong that like literally everyone in that generation looks like look alike sort wh were, were you were you handed down that situation where your child looks just like the my dead kids, my kids <laughs> look like they're dead and my <laughs> husband has Four other brothers who look alike And they look like their dad And my father in law looks like his brothers, So they all look alike So I was like, I need to know They call them strong genes Don't worry, I'm also there Every day I ask somebody Does he look like me? Does he look like me? <laughs> Doctor, is there such a thing as having strong genes That overpower other people's genes?
1: My brother sent me a TikTok video the other day and and it's got a guy walking down the street and he said you know i was uh, thinking to myself that one of my children and he said i got five kids one doesn't look like the other four and he said and i thought to myself i'll I'll ask my wife about this and so he says to his wife you know i've been thinking about the children and the fact that the, the you know the littlest one doesn't look like the the other four and i, and I was just thinking about who the dad might be and, and she said well i 'm glad that you 've brought that up because that, that, that there is a an admission to make here, which is that yes they, they do have he does have a different dad to the other four and uh, and the guy saysWell who, who who is the dad for the them the, 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 and he said um, you are <laughs> <laughs> the other four have got a totally different dads. but um, when it comes down to strong genes, we learn in our biology textbooks about dominant and recessive genes and you have this picture in your mind of something which is squashing or crushing its weaker counterpart gene and that's just not true all genes that we carry are equally likely to be expressed but they're not equally likely to be clinically manifest in other words to be visible in what we call the phenotype the appearance of the organism now a really good way of thinking about this is if i've got i've got blue eyes Now, the reason I've got blue eyes is because I don't add any extra color or pigment to the colored part of my eye. So the natural color of the eye is blue. But if I inherited a set of genes from one of my parents that did add color to an eye, it's not that that gene magically is stronger than all the other genes. It's just that when you add color to a blank canvas, you get something other than just the color of the canvas. So it's clinically manifest as darker eyes. We are the product of about 20,000 genes, which all work in harmony in unison together, which we inherit from our parents. We don't inherit specific groups of genes from dad or mum. We inherit a random combination of genes from our mum and from our dad. And when we make sperm and make eggs, which genes we're going to pass on are randomly selected in terms of the chromosomes. But some genes are closer together than other genes, and therefore they're more likely to get inherited together. Because when you look along the DNA molecule, there's certain genes which sit next door to each other, and they're less likely to be mixed up by the processes that give rise to the genetic reassortment that happens during making sperms and eggs. So as a result, there are some characteristics which are written into genes that sit close to each other that tend to be inherited together. But otherwise, it's completely random. But if you're a boy and you inherit a bunch of genes from your dad that tend to be best expressed in the context of other male characteristics, then they may be a bit more prominent Mm. and vice versa so there is an element of of which gender you are which sex you are whether whether certain genes will manifest more or other in in certain offspring but it is a random process it's it's entirely down to chance what genes you inherit from each parent and that makes you completely unique as an individual unless of course you're a member of identical twins or triplets.
0: Nelly so I'm going to comfort you by saying you know, I believe that kids are literally the best parts of their parents put into one little human being. Oh, thank you! <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for that, uh, Nelly Sway. Let's go to Robert in four ways. Hi, Robert. Oh, good afternoon for everybody. I have mm. a question to the doctor. Chris to not waste the time. Is the vita Vitaligo- legal? why appear and is connected to the inheritance from the we call my wife she has a psoriasis and appear in my daughter on the 20s after treatment for the acne i think it was acne when she was in a in as a teenager and um you know in the specific time there are specific products like uh, she can't drink any absolutely minimum amount of the any of the alcohol because she has a completely absolutely allergic reaction
1: Uh, mm. right okay In terms of, I suppose, this this can be boiled down to why is it that someone can inherit a certain characteristic from a parent but it's not immediately manifest? Why Why might it take years to come out? Well, genes are part of the equation but they're not the whole story because the key thing here is the interaction between your genes and your environment. And you've hit the nail on the head when you highlight the alcohol story. In some people, for instance, there may well be genes that mean they're really susceptible to becoming alcoholic. Or they may have a particular combination of genes that mean they're really susceptible to their liver being damaged if they drink alcohol. But unless they live in a country where alcohol is available and they routinely culturally drink it, then they're not going to know they've got that gene. Similarly, there may well be genes that make you more predisposed to getting certain conditions But until you encounter the triggers from the environment or reach a certain age where you've had enough exposure to that thing that triggers your risk of the condition, that there's been enough rolls of the dice for that thing to manifest itself. So genes are part and parcel of it. They can perhaps load the dice in terms of risk of something happening, but they're not the Uh, judge and jury they don't make it happen they change the odds of something happening and really you need the environment and to take into account and consider what the environment is doing at the same time to look at the ultimate outcome for an individual
0: thank you so so much robert for that question let's head over to george in highlands north hi george
1: hi Hi, Chris. Um, I wanted to know, uh, blind people don't have any reference to how the world looks like. So, what do they dream? How do they see their dreams? Or do they see anything when they, when they have dreams at night? If mm. they've never seen mm. anything, especially if they were born blind. Mm. Um, I understand yep. if you get blind later, you
0: have reference to what the world looks like. But if you're born blind, What do you dream about and what do you see in those dreams or do you just dream in sound? I think I can Hmm. also add to that, George, um, is to ask you, Dr. Christmas, what does the imagination create visually? I too
1: was intrigued by this, George, and thanks for the question. When I was young, because I had a very good friend, because I used to have a CB radio, and I used to sit at home and I used to talk to anyone and everyone I could reach on my CB radio. And I made friends with this guy who was in his 70s. You know, I was a little kid, I was about 10, and we used to have really long, detailed conversations because I was a bit geeky like that, even when I was 10. And I asked him that very question because he was almost blind from birth, Mm. as in he could see a little bit for a very short phase of his life, but various problems with his eyes necessitated their removal at a really young age. So he regarded himself as pretty much blind since birth. Mm. And I put this to him, what happens when you dream? Because I said to him, when I go to sleep and I dream, I'm having incredibly vivid pictures all in color with sound and sensations going on. What are you dreaming? And he said, it's just words, Chris. Oh, wow. Wow. The, he, he, too, distinguished, like George did, between people who, like him, had been blind since birth versus those who went blind later in life. Because he said, my friends who went blind later in life used to love going to sleep because they could see again. Aww. They effectively would recreate lots of images and they would have pictures and colours. They had reference, as George points out, to mm. what the seeing population described. But when you've never had those experiences, your brain can't create those experiences because having the experiences as you grow up patterns your brain and its ability to decode them and make sense of them. So if you have never had those sorts of inputs to your nervous system, and particularly the parts of the brain that make those images and decode those things coming in from your eyes, then effectively your brain doesn't know what it's missing, so it can't create those experiences. And actually the the brain territory that would normally do the jobs of doing the seeing, some of it gets transferred to doing other jobs to become much better at enabling you to decode sounds or read braille and that kind of thing. So the long and the short of it is that if you've been blind since birth, you don't have a visual reference, but you may well find you have very vivid audio, auditory experiences and words. Effectively, you magnify the world you do live in your brain doesn't invent a visual one that you don't.
0: Mm. And I'm wondering. And you, you mentioned words there, Chris, and sound. I'm wondering if other senses come into the picture as well. Like, you know, in my mind, when a person is blind, their other senses are quite heightened compared to the to the average person. So, would you would you assume or think that those other senses might also be intensif- intensified in that dream state?
1: it's possible one has to remember though that we're resourceful creatures and the more we do something the better we get at it now most of us are not forced to try to explore braille with our fingertips and read it at lightning speed like a blind person who's had loads of practice can do but that's because they've had loads of practice and it's not that there's something special about them uh, that that suddenly their brain can do something that someone who's seeing can't it's that they've had enormous amounts of of practice because they've had to so they've used that incredibly big brain and resourcefulness to learn to be very good at doing those things so the more you do something the better you become at it, and the more brain territory tends to get allocated to doing that job. So does that get reflected in your dreams? Well, I suppose you you probably would get more of those sorts of experiences or things that were relevant to your day-to-day experiences being created in your dreams, yes.
0: Thank you so much, George, for that question. Unfortunately, we have run out of time, but thank you so much, Dr. Chris Smith, back together again next Monday.